You're listening to Bodyful, a podcast that explores the wonder and complexities of living in this human form and how we can engage in an ongoing practice of bodyfulness to become more fully at home in ourselves and in the interconnected web of Gaia, the living earth. I'm your host, Valerie Martin, and I'm the founder of the Gaia Center for Embodied Healing, where we support folks in their growth and healing work with somatic psychotherapy and embodiment practices. We hear all the time about the importance of being mindful, and it's time to invite our bodies to the party. Welcome to Bodyful. Hello, friends. So I'm not going to lie. I kind of feel like I'm cheating right now because I'm recording this in late December. And normally I like to share things while they're fresh. But also I'm trying to get with this whole deal of like not doing things at the last minute. What a concept. So I am getting this off to my administrative assistant to... um, do her magic on and share with you all early in 2022 and it's man it's like we're we were all ready for like the sigh of relief of 2021 beginning and then it was like just kidding so as much as we know better this time around we know this is not like a clean break fresh start everything is fine I'm also like surely it can't be as bad, right? Right? I mean, I guess I shouldn't say that. I don't know. I'm not a fortune teller. (laughs) Oh, goodness. So anyway, here I am from the past coming to your ears and uh, introducing you to our wonderful guest for this episode, Susan Shore Femi. I have had the pleasure of learning from Susan one-on-one and it's, you know, this is kind of, I guess, one of the like perks, if we can call it that, or silver linings of this COVID experience is trainings that normally I would have had to travel for. Um, I am getting to do from the comfort and convenience of home or my office and not have the expense of travel as much as I would love to meet Susan in person. I hope that happens one day. But um, I've gotten to do this one-on-one instead of in a small group setting, which is pretty cool. Um, And she really has become a mentor over this process of becoming an open focus certified coach over the past couple of months. And what am I going to do with that? Why did I decide I wanted to, to become a certified coach? I don't know, guys. I just need every certification that seems remotely interesting, right? That makes sense. (laughs) I'm in a goofy mood if you can't tell. But no, I mean, I, as soon as I found Open Focus this fall, I, it just resonated so deeply, felt so aligned with so many of the other things that resonate for me that I was like, I need to go all in on this. Like this feels so important and so true to me that I want to take it as far as I can. So I, I don't regret at all the decision to um, 
do the coaching process. I've grown from it and learned so much from Susan's wisdom uh, as a fellow therapist, LCSW, and someone who has walked alongside her um, late husband, Les Femi's brilliant work over the past um, decades. And it's just been so uh deeply restorative for me to encounter this practice and learn about the importance of not just what we pay attention to, but how. So let me tell you a little bit more about Susan. Susan Shorfemi, LCSW, received her master's degree from Columbia University and is currently the director of the Princeton Biofeedback Center, LLC, in Princeton, New Jersey, where she combines the teaching of open focus training with multi-channel phase synchrony neurofeedback. Y'all, I know that has a lot of words. We will explain some of it, and I'm going to comment more on some of that in a moment, too. She's interested in combining traditional psychodynamic psychotherapy with the skills of open focus and synchrony training. She, along with Les Femi, PhD, are co-authors of several peer-reviewed journal articles and their latest book, The Open Focus Life, published by Shambhala. So links for The Open Focus Life and the previous book, The Open Focus Brain, will be in the show notes at the website, gaiacenter.co. And um, one thing I forgot to mention in the podcast and have Susan talk about was sort of what is the difference between open, open focus training and the neurofeedback component. Um, and in short, my uh, less articulate than what Susan would have said version is that while you can do the synchrony brainwave um, training with the neurofeedback device, you can also do it without um, just by learning the process of open focus, which I would say is best done using the audio recordings that you can get on the website and that um, come along as accompaniment, at least to the first book. I can't remember if there's any in the second book as well. But um, the recordings have been wonderful for me and have really helped me to deepen and develop the practice. So I highly recommend them. And then as we discuss in the interview, it's ultimately about weaving this in, integrating this more fluid style of shifting um, attention in your day-to-day life. So that's the gist of it, that you, I may never do sort of formal neurofeedback hooked up to one of the many different neurofeedback devices. I might just out of curiosity, but I think that so much of the benefit of what I could get through that, I can also get by continuing some amount of formal open focus practice and integrating it in my day-to-day. So um, you can find... Open Focus and Susan online at openfocus.com. So check out the website, check out the show notes, and enjoy this conversation with Susan Shore Femi. We are here with Susan Shore Femi. And I have had the pleasure of learning with Susan over the past few months, and it has been so enjoyable. Um, It's really deepened my own practice and and brought me into some exciting things to share with clients. So thank you so much for being here, Susan. Oh, thanks for having me, Valerie. Yeah. So before we jump in, since a lot of what we're going to be talking about today is open focus attention training, 
I would love for you to guide us through a brief practice and then we will break down what this thing is. So, um, so for people who are driving, maybe you just kind of skip forward. I mean, you can do this practice with your eyes open while driving to a degree, right? But, um, and sometimes we naturally do that, but, um, for everyone else, just kind of settle in and, uh, Susan, take it away. Yes. Driving can be a problem because, uh, <laughs> as you start to do this, your brainwaves slow down a little. True. And it can, yes. If you're new at it, you could get sleepy. So please if pull over or don't drive, but yes, you can do this with eyes open later when you gain some facility. Okay, well, I'm going to be talking a lot about why space is important, and it's going to seem like an odd thing to begin with, but I'd like you just to spend a few minutes feeling into the spaces that I'm going to mention, and I'm going to give you about 10 seconds between each question, so it's you don't need to respond to it. So can you imagine is a phrase that encourages effortlessness. I don't want you to try too hard. It's the um, antithesis of where we want to go. So you get what you get and you can be sloppy about it. So can you imagine feeling your fingers filled and surrounded by space as well as the space between them? Space is something we usually exclude in our awareness, even though we are mostly space and the environment is mostly space. So I want you to begin with feeling the space in and around and between your fingers. Can you imagine feeling your hands and arms filled and surrounded by space? As you continue to feel your hands and arms, can you do the same? with your feet and legs. And can you imagine as you continue to feel your arms and legs that you can also feel your torso filled with space? Can you imagine feeling the space that fills your shoulders and trapezius muscles and your neck?
Can you imagine feeling your head and scalp, face and ears, all filled with space so that you're feeling your whole body simultaneously filled with space. Can you imagine as you feel your whole body filled with space, you can also imagine feeling the space on either side of your body. and the space in front of you and behind you. And above you and below you. so that you're feeling your whole body filled with space and surrounded by space simultaneously. Can you imagine what it would be like if the space inside your body and outside your body was one continuous space and you could feel this space extending as far out as you can feel it without efforting. Even just a little space in and around your body is good, but if it extends beyond the room, beyond the town into the universe, that's good too. Space is everywhere and yet we ignore it. And this space that you're feeling is also a space you can hear in the form of silence, even taste and smell. And certainly if your eyes were open, you could see this space. Even our thoughts exist in a kind of space. And time passes through space, the flow of time. And yet we ignore space. Once again, can you imagine bathing in this space inside and outside? And imagine what it would be like to rest in this space for the remainder of this podcast. And as you slowly open your eyes and move around, imagine maintaining space 
as a part of your awareness. Okay. Wonderful. That was a, a beautiful introductory practice. And as you said there at the beginning and the end, we, we typically don't think of space. We yeah. ignore it. And so I'm trying to figure out what order to ask these questions in because there's so much I want to ask. But um, why attend? Oh, the, that's the, the question I would have started out with, too, <laughs> yeah. is, you know, most of us, and I am sure most of your listeners have experienced a great many different techniques that are relaxation techniques, meditation, guided imagery, um, or have experienced states that are uh, exalting, that really uh, bring us to another state, either listening to music or, or holding a loved one. But what they all have in common that nobody has pinpointed it as well as, as uh, Les Femi who devised this open focus method is that when we start attending to space, your brain begins to change. Brain waves slow down and become more rhythmic. And when slower, more rhythmic brain waves or synchronous brain waves, particularly in the alpha band, which is a nice medium range of, of frequency, when we attend to space, these nice slow rhythmic waves occur. And when they do, the nervous system, the autonomic nervous system comes into balance. So you, instead of being over aroused in sympathetic fight or flight or freeze, where we're all tensed up, um, we begin to start bringing parasympathetic activity online, which is the relaxation response. And through that, we start controlling all the peripheral systems, the vascular system and the muscular system and the endocrine system. So by simply opening up to space, you're having this cascade effect through this, the brain waves that change, which reflect the nervous system, which create all the other systems and, and dictate how we feel in any given moment. And yet, space has been ignored all these years. If you're interested, I can go into a brief account of how Les Femi discovered this. Um, it, yes, I would love yeah. that. I love, I love the story of this. I love this story too, because it's so nice to have Western science validating what Eastern practices have been saying for years, mm -hmm. what we've known about relaxation. And it all started and um, Les had gotten his uh, PhD at UCLA and was doing some postdoc work at the Brain Research Institute. And some studies that he had done um, working with the visual sphere, he discovered that information when it goes through the visual um, um, autonomic nervous system going from the retina to the brain, that information flows up from the retina to the brain in synchronous packets of information. It, it's, there's not enough time for us to transfer information in a sequential or temporal sequence. So it all comes at once, which led him to say, well, what else in the nervous system is synchronous? All comes in packets of synchronous activity. And he thought of alpha, which is a brainwave associated with synchrony. 
and decided he was going to practice and see if he could train his brain to produce synchronous alpha activity. And he built some equipment. There was no such thing as neurofeedback in those days. And he thought he was going to be able to do this really well because he had studied Zen for many years. He knew he, it, he was a psychologist. He knew all kinds of um, relaxation techniques and hypnagogic uh, imagery techniques. And he thought this was going to be a piece of cake only to discover that he couldn't produce more alpha. So he, he had converted this EEG and put some sensors on and gave himself a way to monitor his brain waves. And he was very upset that he couldn't increase the amount of alpha he was producing. And it was, uh, he spent, he was very diligent. He spent two hour sessions over 12 days trying to produce these alpha waves. And in a moment of great despair, he concluded he just couldn't do it. Maybe it couldn't be done, but he couldn't do it. And fortunately, he was still hooked up to the equipment while he was um, despondent and, and really had surrendered to despair. And wonderfully, lo and behold, his alpha waves increased many fold. Well, he realized that it had something to do with letting go and not trying, but we don't know how to let go and not try. So when he tried to do it again, he wasn't too successful because now he had a goal and he was trying very hard. But over time, if you look at a graph of his early training, he is, has the ability to increase his alpha and then um, uh, punctuated by periods of decrease. And it was always when he thought he knew what was happening, when he had a goal again. And it, it's not the kind of thing you can try to produce. You have to just allow it to produce. Now, we, we all know this state, you know, those of us who've done meditation techniques or relaxation techniques, you try not to try, but we don't know how not to try. Somebody tells us to do something, we try and do it as well as we can. So he decided he wanted to continue. By this point, he had um, moved across the country to State University of New York at Stony Brook, where he was a professor of psychology and he uh, set up a lab and he brought his equipment out there and he wanted to see if he put other people on this equipment, would they have the same experience as he did? And so students, it was the late 60s, early 70s, everybody was interested in consciousness. He had lines around the block, everybody wanted to ride Femi's machine. And he told them his own experience. He explained that alpha is produced in greater abundance when we're relaxed and alert. And um, even told them how he had to give up into despair. And to his um, amazement, his all his subjects, and there were many subjects, had the same experience he, he did. They couldn't produce any significant increase in alpha. It's not what we think. It's not a, um, something that breathing and relaxation and progressive muscle relaxation can, can bring us. It's a very subtle state of effortlessness, of not trying, uh, but still allowing some goal-oriented activity within a field of not trying. 
So uh, he, he was perplexed again. And even though the students had heard his story, it, it wasn't helpful to them. Uh, at one point by sheer luck, he came across a 20 item questionnaire that was used as a hypnotic induction technique. And he was very surprised to discover that when he read these questions to subjects, two out of the 20 questions in all subjects, subjects who couldn't increase their amount of alpha, but when asked these two questions, were able to significantly increase their alpha. And those two questions were, can you imagine the space between your eyes? Can you imagine the space between your ears? First time he ever heard those words and yet everybody was able to increase these nice alpha waves. Well, it took him some time to recognize that some factors were involved. And the reason these two questions were so powerful was that they did several things. One, the phrase, can you imagine, implies effortlessness. You don't imagine by trying too hard. You imagine by kind of daydreaming or allowing. And that we know is very important in the production of alpha. And the second was bringing people into their body. As you know for, from all of your work, Valerie, we're head trippers, we're always in our heads. And, and if we're gonna get anywhere, we have to re-embody ourselves. And so just bringing people into body awareness is um, immensely important in the production of alpha. But the big one was space. The more that people started to attend to space, the more successful they were. Well, why space? What is so special about space? If, if you think about it, in order for you to become aware of all the space that exists in the, in the room you're in, you have to get bigger. You have to diffuse. You have to open up it, because space is everywhere and runs through everything. And in order to really feel that space, you have to get more into it. You have to be more immersed. So he asked himself, well, who gets bigger? Who diffuses and who immerses? And he, it was then that he recognized that there is a behavior called how you pay attention, that this behavior can become under conscious con control. And when we attend in a way that diffuses awareness and becomes more intimate with that awareness, the more we start producing these brainwaves. And so it, I think his greatest contribution was discovering that there is a behavior described by how you pay attention. It's under conscious control and it underpins everything that we do. We are always paying attention and we are manipulating our attention, but we don't realize it. I mean, those of you who have gone to a concert know that there's one thing when you just get immersed in the music as opposed to trying to figure out if, the, if you like the violinist. Soon as you start removing yourself from the experience and narrow focusing on this or that, usually our intellectual productions, our thoughts, um, you shut down alpha production. So he, he began to talk about and, and, and research how is the way we pay attention an underlying factor 
that's involved in everything that we do. And out of that, he described certain attentional styles that I won't go into now, but there are various ways in which we're always manipulating attention and, um, and that we have a choice to how we pay attention. So that's why space became so important. And it, isn't it fascinating that space, there's more space in the rooms that you're in than, you, than there are objects. And yet you, until I mentioned it, you forgot about it or you didn't even recognize it. And um, so that space is important. We now know that the atom is mostly space, that what we feel as tangible things are really energy fields and that there is space everywhere. So this simple act of, of becoming aware of space in particular feeling space can have a marked impact on you. At a later point, he um, went out to California for the summer and brought his research and his equipment out and, and was talking to this buddy who ran a um, aerospace agency out in California. And they looked over his research and they tinkered with his instrument and made it so that it was measuring alpha all over the head. So they could um, start training alpha at 10 Hertz that were synchronous and synchronous, synchronous, synchronous brainwaves are ones that peak and trough at the same time. So that's, that's how open focus came about. And, and we've been doing open focus training and synchrony training on an EEG piece of equipment for years. And um, that's how I met Valerie. So, uh, but all of this is understanding this is the booby prize. If, if it, we're, we're too intellectual, you could be really um, childlike about it. And kids learn this really quickly. Mm -hmm. Uh, adults are, am I doing it right? Am I feeling it right? But just, so space is, is your friend and space is everywhere. Right. I think you or less um, has said that, you know, sp space is the antidote to trying, right? Yes. Because that's the hard part is like the, the, to have a goal of not trying seems yeah. like such a paradox and yet yes. space sort of is what opens up and allows for that. And, and a couple of things that I love about that story is as you described, you know, the, the sort of him letting go and just opening into that, that despair and hopelessness that even that ended up creating these, these brain waves that have a really positive, um, impact. So it wasn't that we even have to attempt to create a positive or pleasant experience. It's more just in the opening up, which we can do by attending to space that we can create that. So for people who are like, Oh, I, you know, I don't, <laughs> I don't enjoy this. Pro you don't have to enjoy it. Yes. You just have to be willing yes. to do it. And also for people who have typically not enjoyed meditation, a lot of times in my experience, after learning about this, it's, I was struggling with meditation because I was so narrow focused Yes, and whether that's through narrow focusing on the breath or a candle flame or, or a trying to clear the mind. And so this process to me, not, you know, we do meditation as sort of like, Oh, maybe I don't like it, but I know it's good for me <laughs> and open focus actually 
ends up feeling good at the time too, once you kind of get the hang of it. So, um, which really usually increases our likelihood of sticking with something. Yes. Yes. But that's such a good point that, that we, we have a tendency to think that these, these wonderful states are always happy feelings. Sometimes it's opening up in, in miserable circumstances and it's these opening up and surrendering and that's why dissolving pain works that Mm -hmm. you know if our our dissolving pain technique is saying if you did with painful sensations whether physical or emotional what we do with good feelings which is we invite it in and, and want more of it and yet we push away bad feelings but the good feelings go away pretty quickly and the bad feelings would go away pretty quickly if we just opened up to it. Mm-hmm. I know that there are a lot of people just have wonderful results with open focus right off the bat. They, they find it very useful, but there are those of us like me who had a really hard time. I, I knew I was convinced intellectually. I'd seen the research. Mm-hmm. I had been to Les's. Wes was my late husband and um, and I kept at it because I had fallen in love, but I hated it and I couldn't do it. So, but I understood intellectually that it was working. I was a therapist, I had my private practice doing traditional talk therapy. And so I stayed with it and, and faked it a lot and said I was getting results that I wasn't. But ultimately, I learned, too. And um, I, I think I can't imagine living this life anymore without the capacity to change my nervous system just by opening up to space. Mm-hmm. Right. That it's the we, we spend so much um attention or energy on what we pay attention to. Yeah. But not on how we pay attention. Yeah. And that's what this has really taught me. Um, and like you said, I mean, I think that there's um as the experience of these first research participants showed, there's benefit in understanding the underpinnings and the science behind it. But ultimately you have to experience it for yourself. Um, and I wonder for you, I think you've talked about this some, um, but I'm curious if you could share a little bit about what was the turning point for you when it stopped just being an intellectual exercise and you were able to really settle into that lived experience. Well, I had been, um, uh, participating in Les's workshops and I, I really thought that uh, open focus would be a wonderful addition to my psychotherapy practice because psychotherapy helps you work through unconscious things as they become conscious and you bring them into the here and now and you, in, in, in our words, work them through by understanding that it's an old pattern and that you don't need to be repeating it. But for the most part, you're still left with the feelings around it. You know, you you learn to manage them and they don't feel as overwhelming. And I thought, well, open focus could be that last step that can get rid of the remaining feelings, teach your nervous system how to just flow through them. And so that's, and plus I was courting my darling husband. And uh, so I was persistent. But one day I had come out from New York where I had my private practice and I was um, at a workshop and Les decided he wanted all of us 
to go into one of the rooms and hook ourselves up to some form of biofeedback. Mostly we do neurofeedback, brainwave biofeedback, but I chose to do temperature biofeedback because it was an easy hookup. You just put a sensor around your finger and you get feedback when you're raising your hand temperature, which raises when we relax because blood flow returns to the peripheral vascular system and that's what warms us. So I put it on and I had to put on an exercise in the background, an audio exercise, because Les was walking back and forth. Meanwhile, I had faked it all along saying I loved open focus. I did not love open focus and I wasn't practicing it. And I would sing musical comedy scores in my head instead of doing it. It was very painful for me. But I sat there with my hand temperature and uh, listening to open focus. And I was somewhat belligerent. I had been feeling ignored and I was sort of irritated with him anyway. And I didn't like this stuff. And in a very belligerent way, I started to do some of this stuff on, on the exercise and my hand temperature went up 26 degrees, 24 degrees. I had always had chronically cold hands. And I, it was then that I just said to myself, stop being an idiot. This is, <laughs> you've just shown yourself how, how some major change can happen. And it was then that I started practicing five minutes at a time, which mm -hmm. was all I could sit still. Mm -hmm. I have never met anybody worse than me. I have from time to time come across some people like me. And I always tell this story because I think there's no better example uh, than, than some, somebody who struggled with it and made it through. So that was my turning point. And eventually I confessed everything because I think uh, I know if I'm going through it, other people are going through it. Yeah. And the reason and I started with all the fingers is we know that there's more real estate mm -hmm. in the brain for us to feel parts of our body that are more differentiated like fingers and mouth and tongue. So it's easier for us to start with feeling those. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And just that, I'm sorry, I, was I lost my thought when I, you were sharing your reflection, but I think the sitting still part, um, while that's can be really challenging. And I, I personally have found it really challenging during meditation. I know a lot of people who do. Um, and while that could certainly translate to open focus, I do think the attending to space made it a lot easier for me yes. to sit still. So yes. yeah, start with the small doses if that's yes. what works, but also, oh, I know what I was going to say, the stubbornness, right? Yes. Um, <laughs> that sometimes <laughs> we, you know, this is the classic human experience we get in our own way. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's not that we're trying to, but sometimes, you know, we just have to kind of check our own stubbornness mm -hmm. and, um, ask ourselves, like, am I willing to be wrong about this? <laughs> and, and when you became willing to be wrong about it, your whole experience shifted. Yes. So, so yes. again, I just, I hear so many people like, oh, this is not for like, I suck at meditating or whatever. We put ourselves in these boxes yes. and you know, what if, what if maybe you're wrong about that? What if yes. you're willing to just try something and yes. see? Yeah. Oh. We work with a lot of people who've been 
um, uh, studying meditation of various forms and uh, all their friends are getting great results and they're not. And then we teach them a little open focus and have them bring this back to their meditative technique and it suddenly works really beautifully. And um, I mean, it, it's something that you already do. There are moments when you're driving from point A to point B, you're not narrowly focused on the road ahead. Sometimes you weren't even consciously aware that you were, you were just effortlessly driving. So there are states of consciousness that we uh, don't normally pay attention to that are operative all the time. And that I, when I listen to any, I was listening to um, uh, Eckhart Tolle's um, the, the Power of Now, and I was listening yesterday to my grandson was here, and we were watching a Christmas service, a church service, which um, he he follows, and and both times I was thinking, how can you achieve what? you're being asked to achieve if you're not in open focus. You can't get there by trying and you can't get there by intellectualizing. So I, I just feel like it is everywhere and we're always manipulating our attention. Why not discover how you're doing that and bring it to everything you do? We work with athletes all the time and artists all the time. Athletes and artists have, usually have an easy time learning it and kids. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned narrow objective focus, and yes. um, I know if people want the deep dive into what these, all the different attentional styles are, they yes. can read it in one of the books that we'll put in the show notes, which I highly recommend. Um, but I would love for you to say a little bit about what narrow objective focus is, because even though it is natural for us to shift between these mm -hmm. multiple styles of attention, including yes. open focus, what we know is that our culture really prioritizes uh, this narrow objective focus. And then we get into this chronic overuse of it. So I'd love for yes. you to talk a little bit about what that attention style is and what happens when we chronically overuse it. Yes. Well, a narrow focus for the, those of you who are listening to this po podcast you're focused on what you're hearing and what you're thinking about what you're hearing. And you've probably excluded or tried to exclude everything else from you, from what you're doing, trying to focus and pay attention. And then you're, you're absorbing it and you're making sense of it, which is a kind of objective focus. When we, it's like when we look out the window and, and say, oh, what kind of tree is that? Oh yes, it's a maple. We're kind of narrowing on the tree, but we're somewhat distant as we analyze it. Well, when that's how we spend most of our days. Uh, I think uh, Les always thought it was physiological. You, you, you're born and you're born in a state of diffused focus. Um, it, it's everything is one. You don't distinguish yourself from other. Uh, mommy and you are one and the, the part of development that differentiates you is you start to to recognize what's me and what's not me is this is my thumb but that's not my that, that mommy's breast isn't mine and as well it probably requires a narrow objective focus to do that as as a an infant recognizes oh that's a light bulb that's a rattle 
that we're distinguishing objects, we're objectifying our world and we're in narrow focus. Then we, we've, we have a culture which um, rewards people who look like they're highly focused, that they're really concentrating, they're screening out everything else. And, and, and if somebody looks like they're daydreaming, you know, we, we always say, you know, um, pay attention. And what we mean by pay attention is be narrow focused. And the problem with that attention is that when we are focused in this narrow objective way, our brainwaves are faster and they're more irregular. There's nothing wrong with fast brainwave activity or irregular brainwave activity. But when we are in fast, higher frequency brainwaves, the sympathetic autonomic nervous system is in high gear and we have fight, flight, or freeze. So our muscles are tense, our blood flow is distorted, our endocrine system is pushing out adrenaline and cortisol. And that's what we're designed to do and we need that in certain states. But it's very expensive long-term to, to be driving our nervous system. And then we forget that there are other ways of paying attention. So um, narrow objective is what we assume all of us are doing. And I bet you, you all forgot about space in, in the last five minutes. Like how could we forget space? And yet we do, it's, it's part of our conditioning. So learning to do it in a formal you know, exercise is great and that's what we teach, but how much better to just do it in your daily life just right now. Right, right. And you teach some wonderful exercises in uh, especially the new book on yes. what it's like to just do this in small moments. And, yes. and I do think, and the research uh, shows that doing the formal practices is almost kind of like a training of like yeah. relearning how to do this thing that yes. should be natural, but we've yes. sort of culturally trained ourselves out of yeah. doing that formal training can be really beneficial, but then yes, it's to bring it into day-to-day moment-to-moment life. Yes. And I told you, I'll, I'll just share this briefly here, uh, about it was maybe three or four weeks into having discovered, um, open focus. And I was practicing, uh, once or twice a day, longer formal practices, and then found myself in a sort of having accidentally scheduled myself for 10 clients in one day. <laughs> and I remembered after having a really wonderful morning practice, um, and just feeling like that feeling of space was staying with me. I, I kind of thought to myself, you know what, I'm just going to try to stay in this as much of the day as I can. And I kept coming back to the space in my mouth, the space between my fingers, even as I was sitting and really attending to the person across from me, I was also attending to space. And I swear that that, that helped me get through that day in so much yeah. of a different space and energy than uh, I would have been in, in my normal narrow objective focus. So one thing too, that I also wanted to highlight is I think, like you say, people who look like they're highly focused, um, mm -hmm. that when we are, when we only know how to do that in narrow focus, um, we, we can start to sort of trick ourselves because I would have said, and I've heard a lot of people say things like, well, no, I'm already scattered. That's my problem is that yes. I can't neurofocus. Like I need someone yes. to train me yes. to do that. Yes. And, and that, that actually, when we think that we're really scattered, 
it's more that we're in narrow focus and we're just quickly jumping and switching and scanning between one narrow objective focus and another. And that, like you said, is expensive for our our nervous system and exhausting. It's it's such a great interviewer because when um, I should have said that too, (laughs) that it's true that we um, narrow focus, we can do it in this scanning behavior, this hypervigilant behavior. And So people will come in and say, oh, I already know this. I'm the one who sees the bug on the wall. But uh, what they're doing is scanning. And even uh, peak performance. I know this um, uh, Csikszentmihalyi who wrote about the flow experience. He's talking about an immersed experience. You can't get there with objective attention. You have to get absorbed. And, And when you're absorbed, you start opening up. So these attentional states are already operative and learning how to do it more. Yeah. yeah. So I use it a lot with the, I, I am on the OCD end of the spectrum and, you know, a, an OCD personality um, can be very effective in life, uh, but it can be, you know, I don't like to uh, stop things in the middle. I don't like to leave things undone or I like things to be neat. And whenever I find myself stressing over that, I know it's that I'm, I'm in narrow focus again and I'm, I open up and I'm, it goes away. It's just, in, it's all this OCD stuff, which is driven by anxiety, which is driven by an overactive nervous system, which is controlled by how we're paying attention. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you I know mentioned- you're interested in sexuality and, and, uh, I, I also think you use it when you're making love. You can't you can't love in narrow focus. You can't right. be aroused in narrow objective focus. Yeah, especially when we get really caught up in our thinking, um, which yes. is kind of the the last thing we want to do during that experience. And women, we tend to do that, have trouble getting out of our heads. Yeah. So you mentioned using this a lot with um, performers, athletes, Mm -hmm. artists. So to help people kind of be able to increase even already high performing um, kind of individuals, but also this is really effective for just everyone can benefit Mm -hmm. from it. But for people who are a lot of times, you know, we need, we need an incentive to spend some time Mm -hmm. and energy doing something. So, you know, people are willing to do a lot of things to reduce their pain and suffering, Mm -hmm. emotional, physical, psychological. Um, and some of those things will really help, but I think like, you know, also as a therapist, if we can talk about our pain all day long, Mm -hmm. but I really think that until we learn to pay attention to it in a different way, Mm -hmm. whether that's through narrow focus, I mean, through uh, open focus or through other practices, we're just going to be recycling the same stuff. It might just be different content, right? Yes. Yes. That when we're in narrow focus, we're objectifying our experience or another way to say it, we're making objects with the way our brain, um, Uh, creates the objects that we see or we hear in the form of thoughts or we smell or taste is through um, objective attention or narrow focus objective or asynchronous brainwave activity. And um, uh, 
Oh, gee, I forgot what, what we were talking well, about. Well, I'm just curious about like, what is the motivation for somebody who is suffering in some way, whether see, it's psychologically yes. or with physical pain, like yes. why is this effective for them? Yes. Well, it it's because pain is represented in the brain that we have, we may have a pain in our knee or anxiety in our belly or anger in our chest, but there's a physical representation in the brain that is created by asynchronous activity. Right now, when you are, everybody's listening, you have islands of asynchronous activity bubbling up in your brain and going back in, into, into the hole as you process the sights and sounds and thoughts and feelings around you. And so it is with pain that there is a, a state in your head that is kept in place by narrowing attention and trying to push it away. As soon as you start opening up to space and merging with your experience, that brings the brain into synchrony and dissolves those islands of asynchronous activity that are our pain. So it's, it's, as I said before, we do it all the time with good feelings. If there's a good feeling, you wanna feel it more, you open up to it and it goes away pretty fast. Yet we do the opposite with pain. And um, as we say, oh no, I gotta avoid it. Now I think anxiety underpins just about everything. Mm -hmm. And that if we only worked on anxiety, we would go a long way. But when we're anxious, we are we try to rise above it or become or or distract ourselves or if we're in heartache we try to do that well that's just going to make it stronger it keeps creating this asynchronous activity in the brain that represents that feeling as soon as you open up to it and start feeling it and giving space to it it starts to dissolve just like happy feelings mm -hmm. and um and, and I, I, I think artists and, and athletes have such an easy time because they're always doing that. They're working with negative space if, if they're an artist or if they're a singer, they're working, uh, they, they know so well their body into how to bring themselves into their body. I, I was working with a, a, a football player on the Princeton team and he said he got very anxious when he had to read the plays signaled by the um, um, the coach or the playbook or the yeah the um, uh, who's the head guy on the team you could oh, tell I don't no well idea. anyway you they they use these signals to say what the playbook is going to be or what uh -huh. the, what the next move is going to be. And he was always anxious that he wasn't going to remember mm -hmm. what those hand gestures meant when play was coming up. And as soon as he brought open focus, which he brought to all his plays, because he, he mm -hmm. knew this before he came to me. And when I described it, he said, that's what I do. Um, but when he started to open up around his anxiety about not being able to read the signals, um, he, uh, it, his anxiety went away. We see this all the time that one of our trainers is a golf pro and she says, you can't play good golf if you're not in open focus. It's just, it's, and she teaches it when she's yeah. teaching her students. Um, artists know this very well that when, uh, you know, if you're a singer 
and you can have tense muscles in your throat, you have to be breathing in, in, the, in the way that we breathe naturally when we're in a relaxed state. So uh, they don't call it open focus, but it's very familiar. Certainly mm -hmm. artists are working with space all the time. Right. And I think of music and how so much of composition or working with music in any way is not just the notes, but the space between them and the silence. Yes. And, and I know you've are developing a practice around silence, which silence, uh, yes. really lovely too. So, yes. Um, yes. well, I, I could keep talking to you forever. This is so well, fascinating, it, but I, you know, it's so nice to be interviewed by you, Valerie, because uh, your understanding is, is, is so good. And you cued me on certain things that I would have left out otherwise. Yeah. Well, it's, there's so much to cover. So, um, yeah. trying to do that in a 45 minute yes. conversation is challenging, yeah. but thank you so much. And thank tell us it'll be me. in the show notes too, but tell us where people can go online to learn more about you and open focus and yes. how they can get into the practice themselves. There's it's open focus, one word, openfocus.com. And um, you can purchase exercises or you can, there's some videos of uh, me or less lecturing people. Um, there are books that uh, you can get on Amazon, The Open Focus Brain, Dissolving Pain is another book. And the last book is um, uh, Open Focus in Daily Life, Open Focus Life. So um, I think everything is on the website, including my email, which is Susan at openfocus.com. I'm very good at responding. Yes, you are. And Thanks, I appreciate you so much. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you feel moved to share it with someone you think would love it, that would mean so much to me. For show notes, as well as a transcription of this and previous episodes, head over to www.gaiacenter.co. That's G-A-I-A center.co. You can follow us on Instagram at the Gaia Center and follow me at Val K. Martin, V-A-L-K-A-Y Martin. You can also sign up for our monthly newsletter. Look for the link on our website where we'll share about groups and events we're offering locally in Nashville, as well as tips and resources from our therapists that we hope will be valuable and relevant wherever you may be listening from. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.